there, there isn't in, in, in all of this, the Regency trial, some of the things that we come to expect, like, like DNA evidence, it just isn't being there. The state, I suppose, are relying on a kind of common sense, you know, overall picture to be put together. And obviously the defence are trying to attack that common sense picture. I'm Nicola Talent, and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. After 54 days at the Special Criminal Court, the Regency trial came to an end today, with a verdict promised by April 17th next. Jerry the Monk Hutch will remain in custody as three judges retire to consider the case against him for murder, while co-accused Jason Bonney and Paul Murphy were told they could remain on bail. Today, with Niall Donald, we discuss the closing statements made by defence barristers for Bonnie and Murphy, John Fitzgerald Senior Counsel and Bernard Condon Senior Counsel, who both say the state has failed to prove its cases against their clients beyond reasonable doubt. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Before we start, I do want to say, because I wanted to say this, there's a, a very nice man that's been down the court throughout the yeah. uh, the case and he's been, you know, observing and he had a bit of a hip operation in the middle of it, <laughs> Christy, but uh, he is going to have to listen in for the verdict because he'll be away, but he furnished me with Werther's original throughout right, the right. trial. Okay, okay, yeah. okay. <clears throat> We got a little fondness, a little friendship together and um, I was delighted to see him back after he had his operation. But he's one of many people that have been down there. They're like a little family of people that go into the special criminal court. They can tell you everything. Yeah. Do you know when I go snoozies yeah. in the middle of it, <laughs> they'd be able to tell me exactly what was said. They understand the intricacies of the court. They're interested. Yeah, it's a very funny environment because you do get to know people to see, of course, but it's, it's also that everybody gets to know everybody. And yeah, it's sometimes it's easy to forget that there's people on trial for murder yeah. sitting very close to people who've been, uh, you know, grieve, had a grievous loss, you know. Um, We've been there so long that yeah. everybody is so familiar with everybody else in yeah. the, the case. Like, I mean, 52 days. Yeah, which, of is, evidence. A, which is a long time. Uh, I mean, most... Even murder trials are probably done in in four working weeks, twenty days or so, aren't yeah. they? Even even mm-hmm. quite complex ones can be done quite quickly. So it is a long time and a lot of quite technical evidence as well, mm. um, which we're probably going to end up with uh, to speaking about today. Well, today we're going to concentrate on Jason Bonney and Paul Murphy and the cases against them and the closing speeches that their defence barristers made today. Um, there was t- there's obviously two. So John Fitzgerald, senior counsel, represents Jason Bonney. And he started. So his uh, closing speech took a little over an hour, I think. And he basically talked about um, how the evidence against Bonney is the car leaving his house in Dr- Drina Woods, I think it's called in Port Marnock, at 11.36am um, on that February the 5th. It makes its way to Bella Street, and at 12.16, it arrives there and it leaves again at 12.40, um, returning to Drina Woods at 13.18, where it leaves there again at 13.22. We see some CCTV footage there. And then it drives to St. Vincent's, uh, the state say, uh, club at 2.05, where the state say he picked up a man that we've called Flat Cap and delivered him wherever. This car that the state say Jason Bonney was driving, the black BMW car, arrived home again at 3.50 that day. Yeah. Okay. So they've, they've spoken as well about how the cars can be seen leaving in convoy from the GAA ground. And we've already seen CCTV evidence of, of the six men from the Regency or who was alleged to be them, but nobody's really disputing that going into the gone into the GAA pitch and then you see what the state described as six con- cars in convoy leaving and they have also said yesterday that uh, there was a man one of in 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 those six cars there's a man one man in each car uh, fleeing the scene effectively mm-hmm. so um 
John Fitzgerald Senior Counsel said there's a number of holes in in this whole case, basically, uh, of the state. And um, he says that, of course, it's not Jason Bonney or his defence's obligation to defend the case. It's the the obligation of the state to prove it beyond all reasonable doubt. But they did defend it, he said, because they it was Jason Bonney that brought these witnesses over the last few days in. They were sort of bizarre. It was like as if they were lobbed in at the last minute, you know, which, of course, that's how it felt. But it wasn't. It was their it was their time yeah. uh, after the prosecution finished. Um, so when he was questioned, first of all, I think he said that he was driving that BMW Jeep when it left his house. But he states that he went to Newbrook where he had this house under construction and that he was kind of pottering and working there over the day um, and delivering, collecting stuff. He had left the car and he was driving a truck. Now, he has claimed in his defence that it was from that Newbrook property that his father, the late William Bonney, drove the car away really at the kind of important times yeah. which was the when the Regency happened. Um, so, so you can see why he's brought... Like, I mean, it's quite rare for people to defend gangland cases as such. Like, normally it's just... It's a prosecution and then that's really the end we hear about it. Normally people don't produce witnesses. He produced two that... that um, Certainly, put put a, a different narrative forward that he was that he wasn't he could not have been at the Regency at the time suggested or yeah. another witness who suggested he had seen the father drive the car, so it's quite a, a like obviously that's a, a very strong defence that like he he can't be there and be convicted and of course he's facing a charge of of facilitation of the Regency shooting. Um, so, yeah, we did... Knowing of the existence of, of the organised... Of a the criminal, Hutch, the criminal, the criminal gang, basically. the Hutch organised crime yeah. group. That came up actually in Paul Murphy's defence about the knowing of this group's existence. But he basically, and I'm not going to, as you can see, I have a notebook full of notes yeah. yet again, but he basically said that, um, you know, Mr. Bonney had stated that he... he, he was the driver of the car that left the house in the morning and that he was the one that gave that information to yeah. the state. Um, you know, and then that the state then presumed that he's in the car for the rest of the day. So the car is traced by CCTV. This enormous job was yeah. done to trace the cars. And when we were watching the CCTV, look, as we've said a few times, my eyesight isn't great, but the, you know, the screen is quite a distance from you. And, you know, you're looking at grainy footage from a distance, but we were constantly pointed out which car was believed to be, the state believed was his. The BMW is making its way um, to uh, first to this, to Bella Street. And then they say on onwards to it sits waiting before, obviously there's a call made and they go to collect the, for the getaway. Um, But he was basically saying that, um, you know, they don't prove, uh, beyond reasonable doubt that he is the one that's driving it all day. They only know that he was driving it that morning because he told them. Um, And that there's no images of him in the car or sort of clear images. This isn't HD quality. No. This is... um, This is from from shops, from various... From a bus, from uh, people's homes out onto the street. And oftentimes when they were going through it, you'd see, you know, it would move fast. So you'd sort of see when they slowed it down, it would go a bit blurrier. Um, so they were relying on a light, broken light at the back of it to, to sort of constantly identify it and a couple of other markings on the Jeep, including the dirt on it. Um, so he says that the 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 um, Sarah Sked, who's brought in, that she's basically brought in to sort of reiterate in a way technically what the, the state have said, but she's looking at phone traffic as well. And of course, his phone is at or could be at the Newbrook property when he says he was, yeah. and it goes dead for a period of time during the day or it's not answered at the very least. Sorry, it isn't switched off. I think yeah. it isn't answered. Um, they've details of calls that come through that he takes that are always when he's at this Newbrook where he says he was. Um, so he's putting it up to the state really to say to them that, you know, following this vehicle and uh, not being able to see it's him. Yeah. Um, he has given a, a different story. Yeah. You believed the beginning of his story, but you haven't believed 
the rest of his story. Yeah. And also he has produced witnesses. Yeah. So, I mean, he did, he obviously produced uh, two witnesses. Um, one is somebody he's known for 30 years. She described in previous testimony how um, he, he had called to her home and mm. um, at the at a, a certain time um that would that would put in doubt and that she'd also seen his father there um yeah Willie um and then they produced another witness um so the first witness actually says that Willie Bonnie called to her door yeah this is Julie McGinn yeah McGlynn and she says the father called to, to the mother's door that morning. She was in her mother's house. That he came in to use the bathroom. Used the bathroom, came and had a cup of tea with her. Yeah. And that Jason Bonney, while they were having this cup of tea, called to the door and he came in as well. She sort of saw both of them to the front door, to the mother's front door. The mother hadn't arrived back from mass. And that she saw Jason go into the house, stroke construction site on Newbrook. And she saw Willie Bonnie drive away in that Jeep. Yeah. Now, there was an argument over the Jeep anyway. And there has been evidence that this the family fell out, that Jason Bonnie yeah. and his father did fall out. Yeah, cause, because his actual Jason Bonnie's uh, brother-in-law took to the stand um, yesterday. Paul Byrne is his name, who's married to, to Jason Bonney's sister. And he gave a different account of the father's movements. Uh, the father was called Willie Bonney. He was uh, involved in construction. Um, him and Jason had worked together at some point, but had had a falling out long, a number of years before the Regency. But Paul Byrne um, spoke. He, he was a, sort of a rebuttal witness. I don't know if that's the technical term in an Irish court, but he was allowed to come forward to dispute evidence given by Paul Tyrrell, was it? Um, yes. Uh, yes. He was allowed to come forward and, and dispute the evidence. And what he said was he was on holidays, um, which is obviously, you know, it could be traced. He was in holidays in Gran Canaria. He returned home on the 4th of February, the day before the Regency. And the next morning, as they had done for years, him and his wife, Jason Bonney's sister, called into Jason Bonney's parents, Willie and Greta. Um, he described for lunch, like. for lunch, he said every day for the last 10, 15 years, every time they came home from holidays, they called into the to the to the parents the next day or the parents law in this case. And that he remembers it very clearly. And um, because while they were there, they they were the radio was on, the TV was on, and they heard about the Regency and they talked about it. And he said it's something like 9-11, mm. where you'd always remember where you were when you heard of this news. And he said he was in the house from, I think it was half 11 or something like that. They had lunch and William Bonney was there the whole time. They never they never left. So this is a kind of directly contradicts what the other witness was saying. Um, he, and that he, his black Lexus Jeep was in the drive outside. Because black Lexus Jeep and that he, and according to him, he had never seen William Bonney in a long number of years use that, the, the BMW Jeep. Yeah. So that was his direct evidence. And that obviously... You know, as it said in the the prosecution said, both both uh, witnesses can't be correct. Mm. One of them has to be right, and one of them has to be wrong. It's a kind of an Irish thing to need to go to your mother's <laughs> to eat after you've been on holiday. Well, yeah, it? yeah. Well, look, he said it was My a special. My mother still leaving sausages and rashers for me, like if I've been in England. <laughs> yes, well, you know, we were a nation that brought sausages and rashers on yeah. holidays with us for a long time in the eighties. Well, do you remember they, those days? I do, I do, of course. Yeah, I remember people uh, used to bring their getting, three piece suits. and Barry, Barry, uh, uh, Barry tea bags posted over to me in Germany. I think at one stage you just couldn't get a tea no. bag. Oh these we must have thought the rest of the world was savage, like that we you did. couldn't. <laughs> we did. But yeah, no, you can just see that that was a tradition. Actually, John Fitzgerald uh, disputed a number of things about that. Firstly, he said that the Regency was not a 9-11 moment, that it was only of importance to people in the Dublin 1 area. Yeah. Now, I would dispute that because well, I do think maybe just because of media, but I think that was a very significant day in Dublin. Well, it was actually in, in, in a broader sense because it became, it was, if you remember, it was in the middle of a general election and it became a major issue in, in the general election. So it had a resonance beyond like a gangland story in the Sunday world. It certainly became a major issue. But, you know. One certainly became ground zero for it all, but definitely it was a, a big issue. Yeah. But he also disputed the fact that it would be memorable. He got a bit of a laugh about this, that it would be memorable, memorable to go to your in-law's house yeah. he while he liked his in-laws yeah. he certainly wouldn't describe you know that no, had been memorable no but i mean he actually had a you know the 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 paul Byrne was you know he said like they came home from holidays and they always went up and the parents always 
rushed out to the door and yeah. gave gave their daughter a gave hug. Us the sausages. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so look, um, as but it is clear both cases can't be true. And yeah. obviously, was it Paul Tyrrell? Paul Tyrrell. Paul Tyrrell. Sorry, was a guy who was the chairman of a local sports club, and. The Bonnies seem to have their boxing club there. And he said that he knew the car, the black BMW, and that William Bonnie had always driven it. And he said that he was driving home. Now, CCTV had been taken from his house and his wife had been in and given evidence in relation to that earlier in the trial. But he was brought back by the defence to say he remembered that day because he was in dispute Yes, in the high court with the Bonnies. He seemed yeah. to have taken some sort of a civil action yeah. or there was a civil proceedings going on that he kind of got a bit uh, sort of nervous, I think, when he saw the car behind him and that he recognised William Bonnie as the yeah. driver, he said. He said he pulled into his house and you could actually see on the CCTV his white car pulling into the house and this black, um, well, BMW, look, I'm saying that, I... It was a black jeep. As yeah, far as but I, I don't see. think it was in dispute necessarily. There was that people the, near the screens who'd know. <laughs> than me. Well, they did. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't think the defence really disputed that was his jeep in in the CCTV necessarily. I don't know, but they said that John Fitzgerald said that the state didn't bring anybody along to say that they knew Bonnie and saw him during yeah. this kind of you yeah. know. Um, drive around Dublin that would have been uh, and the St. Vincent's GAA club that that was remiss of them they could have done that but they didn't so they're really just what they're seeing is really a car yeah that you know they they only are saying he repeated they're only saying he was driving because he told them he took it out that yeah. morning yeah but they you know your your inference is that he was the only person that drove that car for the whole day that's the state's inference yeah um now, now, of course, the, the 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 state did cross-examine all those, both of those witnesses, and Paul Tyrrell was asked why did he only come forward at this late stage. Yeah. That that became an issue as well. Um, he only, obviously, Jason Bonney has been charged a couple of years at this stage, and he only gave a statement in in I think it was September or October. Um, so that was all became a, a, an issue as well. Why, why did these people come forward? Yeah. And then obviously um, it was the issue was raised uh, in the in the prosecution's closing speech regarding um, Mr. Bonnie saying that his parents are now dead, and therefore they're not in a position to either verify or or be cross examined on on you know basically the father being These sort of thrown into the mix. You know, I mean, essentially, um, Jason Bonney has, yeah, pretty much thrown his father in as one of the getaway drivers, essentially. Of the well, it, it certainly thrown suspicious on him, and that was some some degree why Paul Byrne, um, his brother-in-law, said he he came forward, and he he there was a long debate um, where where it was said that you'd fallen out with him. Mm. Um, that had been said in a statement, but he had clarified and said, I hadn't fallen out with him. I just didn't have any relationship with him. And that they hadn't, uh, he'd spoken two words to him in 10 years, I think he said. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he said there had been, Jason Bonney had, had had falling out with the family. Bizarrely, it was something to do with a trifle uh, <laughs> at, a, at a family meal uh, was was the source of his, we were, he didn't get into it. He got into it, he started getting into it and they kind of said, no, you don't need to be. We don't need the details. No, no, no. I like no. the details of that. How yeah. did a trifle cause such? Well, a row. Anyway, it's a follow-up. Um, um, I just did see there. I have it underlined there because uh, yeah, John Fitzgerald sort of overarchingly described the state's case against Bonnie as alarmingly light. Yeah, that's what he he, he referred a number of times, and I think he opened with that statement that this was a very light case in the first place to have to defend because basically he's sort of saying the state really don't have very much. Um, so another important aspect that he raised was that um, about the phone, you know, and actually also about the CCTV, that there's gaps in this, you know what I mean? That they don't have it sort of minute by minute, hour by hour, whatever he wanted, 10 minutes by 10 minutes, that there's deviations or absences from Bonnie uh, in the in the CCTV. So he talks about uh, that he goes off the radar at 14.48 that day. And that's up around Gracefield Road. Grace Park Road, maybe. Uh, it? Maybe it's Grace yeah. Park Road. And that they don't really catch the 
the Jeep again until 1546 when it resurfaces at Eddie's Fuels, where we do see CCTV of Jason Bonney getting out of that car and walking into Eddie's Fuels where he picked up something. He says these deviations or absences aren't explained and, you know, that... the court as a tribunal of fact can't accept that, you know, it's okay not to know where the car was or what was happening during those times. Um, He also homed in on the fact that the Jeep, when it left Drina Woods, it did go towards Newbrook. Yeah, It took a, a direction. Now, there's a load of maps. There's so many maps been put before this case that both the the councils and the judges have said they've never seen anything like it. I mean, there's always confusion which map you're looking for. They've books and books of maps, but there's this particular map that shows what would be his quickest way, say, for example, to St. Vincent's GAA Club. And instead, the Jeep seems to kind of veer towards Newbrook. Right. Um, now, you'd need, you know, you'd actually need to do a graphic of those maps ourselves to really understand that. But no doubt there's, there. well, he felt there was enough in that to raise it in the defence Um, the direction of the vehicle and the turns it was taking. And again, he speaks about the calls to that phone at 11, 11 11.03, 11.04, 11.07. And then again at 15.17 and 15.18, and the phone is pinging off a mast, which would be near enough to that Newbrook um, property where he said he was. I mean, in the prosecution yesterday, they said there's there's clear footage of Jason Bonnie leaving at at eleven thirty eight, leaving his 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 home, and the same man returns at at uh, thirteen eighteen, and that is identifiable. And then he gets out of the house and leaves again at thirteen twenty seven, and it it is evident that he, according to them, that he is the person leaving at thirteen thirty eleven thirty eight. Mm. And the only reasonable inference was that he was the man driving the car all day, and um, they 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 put. They, and that timing, just before you go on to the next one, is interesting because 11.38, he is caught on the camera at Drina Woods and yeah. this witness, yeah. um, the lady, Julie McGlynn. Julie McGlynn, said that he called to her house around half 11. Now, the state are obviously put forward this uh, CCTV evidence of him being at the house. He couldn't have been in the two places. No. But uh, John Fitzgerald says that the state are hanging their hat on the fact that her timing was simply wrong. Yeah. You know, and this is so many years ago. Yeah, well, let me, and the prosecution obviously have a, take a different, a different stance. They say Junie McGlynn's evidence flies in the face of the evidence of Mr. Byrne, Jason Bonney's brother-in-law, and um, that he can identify Willie Bonney being there, and he can remember that day, and there's a specific reason why he can remember that day, and that Willie Bonney is in the house, according to him, and they're both now, because he's deceased, this can't be verified. And they they also question why Junie McGlynn came forward. When she came forward, they say she didn't speak about the incident until 18 months after he was charged. They say that has to be... Um, so what they say in the prosecution was... Uh, she the 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 closing the barrister says I'd suggest that the evidence doesn't hold any water and I'd suggest it was all lies. That's a, a direct quote, um, mm-hmm. and there's no real explanation is what she is saying. So now we moved on to when uh, Bonnie, when the car has been seized and Bonnie is questioned in the May, and he admits he told a lie under questioning. I'm trying to recall what that lie was. It must have been something to do with the car or... Yeah, I don't I don't know. I mean, he was questioned now. It's not... Um, he wasn't arrested. He wasn't arrested, that, no, no, but he was... And he, he admits that... So he is admitting and the defence are conceding that he did... Maybe, maybe it's not a lie, but that he didn't give them information he had or something like right. this. So it was something that he didn't answer correctly or didn't answer at all. And he says that... You know, there's a reasonable explanation for that. He says that at that time, Jason Bonney had been uh, issued with a gym, a Garda information message that his life was under threat, that his son had left the country, um, that he was terrified. He was uh, afraid of being linked to the Regency, afraid of being linked to the Hutch family. And it is understandable that somebody in those circumstances, John Fitzgerald says that they would, you know, not be wholly honest. And they were, the reason for not being wholly honest was protection and fear. Yeah. Um, in the state's case as well, they, what they did say was that they they, f- they followed the movement of the car 
um, along the Malahide Road, in the aftermath of the Regency, um, going to and from the, this GA pitch in, 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 in Marino. And what they said was um, the car is clearly utilised by, pe- by persons involved in the shooting and that the court has to be satisfied at the very least that, that the cars were involved in the Regency murder. So that's their clear case, mm. I think. Now, he sort of summed it up basically by saying these are his arguments, like the yeah. defence arguments. It's a thin case, Yeah, number one, in that they don't have forensics from the car to show that flat cap was in it or no. anything like that. So they have nothing like that. Uh, they literally have the CCTV. Yeah. And it being his car. Yeah, well, I mean, that's that's the basis of their case that, that you know, that there, there isn't in, in, in all of this, uh, the Regency trial, some of the things that we come to expect, like like DNA evidence, um, you know, like uh, it just isn't being there. And also the CC, there has been loads and loads of CCTV. Um, and we did obviously have surveillance photos of, of um, Jonathan Dowdle and Jerry Hutch meeting dissidents up the north. But a lot of the other CCTV has been car, movements of cars yeah. only. So, and evidence was given, by the way, that this car was clean. You know, yeah. when I say that, that there's no forensics in it. The car had been cleaned, I think, a number of times uh, between February and the, the May when it was seized. So um, John Fitzgerald says there was no obligation on Bonnie to engage at all in this case. No. He, he didn't have to uh, produce witnesses. He didn't have to give a defence. But he did make a case on his on his own behalf when, you know, it was up to the state to prove it, but he did put forward. He says um, that... The witnesses were good witnesses, yeah. basically, that they'd nothing to gain, he says. And I think in particular that Tyrrell was at dispute with them yeah. at one point. The concerns about the interview, he says, you know, that this business of he didn't tell the full truth in the interview with the police is, he's calling that common sense. Use your common sense and you'll realise why he didn't tell everything because he was afraid. Yeah, I suppose there's a distinction between making a witness statement, signing it in the presence of a Garda, and I suppose what, which somebody does if they're arrested and they want to make a statement. Um, otherwise, what what's happened in this case is he's been questioned, but it's a, a slightly less formal process, I think it's fair to say. However, Garda can take notes and obviously introduce them into court. There would be a distinction, I think it, it is fair to say, and maybe there are drawing on that distinction to a degree. And he finally basically said that, um, you know, his account of what he did that day, this was being at the the construction site and then going to Eddie's Fuels later in the afternoon, that it has stood the test of time, the defence say. And they say that um, they don't believe that the case has satisfied its weighty responsibility in proving beyond reasonable doubt. Yeah. Which is kind of where we get to with the, have come from with Jerry Hutch as well. Yeah, yeah. So that was Jason Bonney's case. Have you anything to add to that? Do you want to? No, not, 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 not particularly, Jason no. Jason Bonney, bizarrely, today was mm. falling asleep. Was he? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I suppose. The only person that was actually properly engaged, and Paul Murphy was a bit more, yeah. Jason Bonney looked absolutely knackered. I'm yeah. sure, you know, 54 days into the evidence. Yeah, yeah, would maybe, be, a, maybe a sleepless night. Here maybe a sleepless night, exactly. And he had just a tendency to sort of nod off and then he was sort of, you know, he just looked really, really tired. Paul yeah. Murphy beside him was a bit more alert. But the most alert of all was Jerry Hutch. Who always looks chilled out, it has to be. Chilled out, but alert and listening to everything. And I really noticed as well, uh, there's certain parts of the uh, evidence, even this defence argument that is more interesting to him because he sits forward, you know, or he'll sit forward in the thing. And he was very interested to hear what the defence were saying about Buckingham Village. Right. Yeah, but we'll come on to that. Um, So we took a break and Bernard Condon, senior counsel, who is representing Paul Murphy, was asked how long his evidence would take, or his, sorry, his closing speech would take. And he said it would take between the time of John Fitzgerald's and and, uh, Fiona Murphy's. So kind of about an hour and a bit, went for a cup of coffee, came back and he started. And um, I have to say, I thought he was excellent. Right. Really good. I mean, he's the sort of guy, I'll put it like this, you'd want him on your side. Right, okay. okay. You, you wouldn't want him to be 
questioning question you. you or cross-examining yeah. you. He can sometimes come across as quite aloof. Yeah. And um, like they're not there to be nice, but it's it's his job, as I say. But I, I thought he was excellent um, in his closing. So he opened by saying that the closing of the prosecution struck him yeah. as being a very broad brush of of assertions. Yeah. It was very, very broad. And I think you would possibly agree with that having sat through it. Yeah, I mean, I think it was slightly different, of course, than, than, than it might be before a jury. And part of it is, of course, the nature of the charge, which is facilitation uh, with knowledge of the, the, the a criminal organisation, basically, to paraphrase it to, to a degree. So it becomes a slightly different thing, doesn't it? That they're trying to not just, you know, they're trying to prove true a degree of membership or involvement or knowledge of this mm. criminal organisation, the Hutch, obviously the Hutch organised crime group in this case, you know. So, yeah, it, it, it is, it is. Um, he said that, like, where there's no evidence is sort of just brushed away. He said the forensic analysis, which is absent, they just, you know, don't kind of bother with that. Yeah. Uh, Sarah Sked, who is the, you know, the Garda, Technical expert, basically. Yeah, she's she, been brought up in a number of cases to. Yeah, she, she does. The she's the phone analysis, yeah. for, for example. He says that she's a consolidation of whether the primary evidence in the case is sufficient. Yeah. So she's sort of supposed to come in to sort of rubber stamp yeah. what is really good primary evidence. But he's saying that there isn't, there was an insufficient primary evidence in the first place. Yeah. So her evidence to consolidate that. Yeah. reflects the fact that it wasn't good in the first place, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I mean, I think you hear with, with, with Paul Murphy's the movements of the cars, again, are a key part of the state's case, um, that that Paul Murphy's car is located um, going into Buckingham Village, um, located coming out of Buckingham Village, and then it's located at, uh, at the GA pitch coming out in this convoy, as it's described, um, and that they're... Like that is the the basis of the case. That mm-hmm. now you heard evidence about um, Paul Murphy's obviously a taxi driver. Yes, um, and he, you know, he had a number of receipts showing something different. The state's case is that though these receipts can't be relied on, that they're not uh, legitimate. Let's put it that way. Um, there's also evidence about how a key card was found. A key. Uh, what would you call it, a key card to get into Buckingham Village, which the state located as kind of the starting point of this conspiracy. Mm-hmm. Uh, Buckingham Village is a long been associated with, it's on the road where Jerry Hutch grew up. It's a set of apartments and the state's case is that central to this to this conspiracy mm. that, that led to the Regency murder. And that Paul Murphy, um, a key card to get into there was found in Paul Murphy's home. They're not satisfied with his explanation, which was the car, that he. I think it was found in. It was found in his car. Sorry, yeah. but he he did address that in in guard interviews, and he said he just found it in his taxi, mm-hmm. and he chanced his arm, I think, to see if it, if it would work. So the state are obviously saying that you know that's not a credible explanation. He's obviously given that as an explanation, nonetheless. Um, so that that's a large part of the. The case against Paul Murphy. And Paul Murphy's taxi, he had sort of leased it from Eddie Hutch. Yeah. And he used to pay him in cash for that. And uh, Bernard Condon speaks about the state's case being kind of guilt by association and suspicion as opposed to facts. He said, um, he also said that he doesn't believe this case has been proved beyond reasonable doubt in any way, shape or form. He says that the state said that Buckingham Village, as you just mentioned there, was the centre of everything. Yeah. And he says, is that proved? What do we know about Buckingham Village and the centre of everything? Was that a flat? Was it the car park? Was it a car? Um. You know, what was it that the state didn't really properly establish? They just sort of put it, left it there that it was the centre of things, but uh, didn't dig down into that. No, I mean, the state's case obviously is that as well, a part of the state's case is that Kevin Murray, known as Flat Cap, can be seen being dropped to, to Angel Street, I think it is actually, um, and then which is close to Buckingham Village. So that's a part of it that he's dropped. And then, you know, it's their case that he he then obviously re-emerges in this van at the Regency and that there is a convoy 
that that fan is a part of, and therefore, when you put it all together, mm-hmm. you know this 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 leads to a inescapable guilt, I suppose. Uh, he says that there was a suggestion during the trial that all participants of this job didn't know what the other one was doing. Now that was something that was a remark made by Jerry Hutch in the tapes in that journey, that famous yeah, journey yeah, with Jonathan yeah, Dowdle. Yeah. And he made some remark about, uh, you know, sure, none of the six knew who the others were. Yeah, I something. mean, he said it in conversation and Jonathan Dowdle is is talking about who, who basically who did the Regency one way or another. And Jerry Hutch says, as you said, sure, even the six people don't know who they yeah. are. You know, so obviously there's, you know. Now Bernard Condon has strangely taken that as a piece of fact. Yeah. You know, he said that that was thrown into the case. Now, I think he would have done better on this argument had it been put in by perhaps the Gardaí yeah. or somebody like that. It's the fact that it was a quip in during the conversation. Yeah. Anyway, he says that it doesn't make sense because of that, that all supposed participants in this job are hanging around Buckingham Village. Are they there, he says, for tea and biscuits yeah. beforehand? And yeah. he got a bit of a laugh that actually Jerry Hutch found that very funny, that little right. bit. Um he says that the state are putting two and two together with this and they're getting 600, that his uh, client, Paul Murphy, was a taxi driver, that he has stated that he was working that morning or during those hours he was picking up fares. Um, and, you know, sort of, could he have picked up a fare there? Could he have picked up a fare? Like, wh- why was he there? You know, he was working that beat kind of thing. He says that while Mr. Murphy is in Bella Street, uh, but Bella Street is the lane that is goes the laneway, into, yeah. That we don't have much of a view of that, and that laneway is a bit of a strange little road, yeah. and it goes right the way down to Corinthians. Yeah, and he's sort of saying that just because the car drives in there, does that mean that he's talking to Patsy Hutch? Yeah. How do we know that? We've no corroborating evidence of that. Does that mean that he's having this sort of meeting in the car parks with other people? We don't know that. You've seen the car go down, and that's kind of it. The CCTV, I think, sees him pull in there at 10.45 a.m. and pull out at 11.47 a.m. Now, the state are saying that this time overlaps with flat cap being there. Yeah. And uh, Bernard Condon says he does not accept that that is proved by the state. No, because there is obviously uh, footage of flat cap arriving at a certain location close by... As far as I can remember, there's yeah. no footage of him actually walking into Buckingham Village. So no, that's exactly. not available. So. so Bernard Condon is saying like that basically, you know, can we say that uh, Paul Murphy and Kevin Murray met there and spoke there? No, we ca- oh, sorry, no, the state cannot. They have, have not proven that. No. However, yeah. you can see the van that arrives at the Regency with yeah. Kevin Murray in it. And that is the state's case that... You know, it come, it leaves Buckingham Village, the van, and yeah. arrives at the Regency, and Kevin Murray gets out. So in some ways, yeah. he's had to have got in as well. Like, um, I mean, he's picking, of course, apart the case yeah. because that's his job. He of also course. says that he does not accept that Paul Murphy and that the state has proven that Paul Murphy was there when Jason Bonney was there when the car left. Yeah. So he doesn't accept that. He doesn't accept that they were travelling in convoy. Um at one point, they talk about the convoy coming out. I think it's out of St. Vincent's GA Club Casino Park. Yeah, Casino Park is kind yeah. of the road that goes into the GA pitch. Ah, he says that the state have said they were in convoy cheek by jowl at that yeah. stage, which he says, absolutely, there's no way. Um, he talks about the, the CCTV and how uh, this car that that Paul Murphy was driving in Avensis. Uh, is the most common car and they brought evidence I think to that regard that it was the most common car in the taxi fleet in Dublin. Yeah. Um, They brought a Paul Brady in. I missed that evidence but I I did hear about it but they brought this uh, Paul Brady in and he's been in the business for for, as Bernard Condon says donkey's years. He says the events as car is the most common. He says that the car while the state is saying it's silver it changes between silver, gold and green. Hmm. He says that the logbook says the car is green. Uh, Mr. Murphy describes it as gold and in the CCTV it shows up silver. Right. That's really just putting more of a kind of yeah. discrepancies into it, isn't it? Yeah. Um, he says that the prosecution didn't do anything to sort of sort of fight their case really that this event says was Paul Murphy's. You know, we're a city in Dublin, one million people live 
how many taxis are there moving around. This is the most popular make of a taxi. So what did they do? They said that there was a tax and insurance disc on the left hand the left-hand corner, and he said that, you know, 99.99% of cars and taxis have their display, their tax and insurance on the left-hand corner, which I do. Uh, there's some stickers apparently on the back. One of them seems to be a halo stickers. He said they're not very distinctive. And again, they could be anywhere. He talks about the quality of the CCTV that, um, you know, when they're giving the evidence that this is Paul Murphy's taxi traveling around the city in the same way as I was talking to you about Bonnie's car, he says that, you know, they say, look, that's the taxi again. There's the wheel. Look at the wheels and look at the tires. But they didn't. He says the state didn't do anything to really qualify what was different about those wheels and those tires that it's like saying there, look, there's the car. It has four wheels on it. Yeah. Um, he said that uh, given the scale of importance of what the state are inferring about Paul Murphy, that he would have thought that they could have given more um, sort of identifications, I suppose, yeah. on the car to prove that it was it. Um, he talks about the glare on the cameras that sometimes that they'll be saying there's a sticker here on the window, but actually it could be a glare of a camera. It could be the window reflecting something that's in the car. He says that there's rain during that day yeah. because you can see in the background people have umbrellas up. And, you know, is this raindrops, some of the stuff that they're pointing to on the car? So Paul Murphy uh, said he was out working that day. He said that at 13.14, quarter past one that day, he pulled into the Maxwell service station. And he says he volunteered that information to the guardie when they spoke to him, that he had pulled into the Maxwell service station. But sure enough, there was a CCTV camera yes, on that station. Like, yeah. So he, he he's saying like he told them that before they knew. Right. Um, so he bought a sandwich there and then he drove up to the beachcomber where he said he saw a space and reversed into it and presumably ate a sandwich that he bought. And um, Bernard Condon says that it was Paul Murphy that told them all that. So he's admitting that. Yeah. Um, and then they go and find out the same. Um, so they, so they're coming from with that is that he wasn't trying to hide what he was doing that day. So, I mean, they, they the, the state obviously get, went first and they say some of his, they described his explanation, for example, for the key card found at Buckingham Village and um, that, that he, he, he just found this key card randomly. Um, they described that explanation as laughable. Um, they described on one occasion a number on, on, on Mr. Murphy's phone and that, that is the number of Eddie Hutch at one point. And they say uh, the taxi receipts that, that Kevin Murphy made available, which you didn't really hear much about, I don't think, exactly. A little exact, bit, yeah. But the, what they said was that the taxi receipts tell a lie yeah. and that his car is seen going into Buckingham Village. At no point is he seen uh, walking out himself. Yeah. They say, you know, there's, there's, there's one way in and one way out, effectively. And yeah. He's not seen leave. And that, when put all together... Um, the, the state's case is clear, basically. So defence, Bernard Condon says that, um, you know, he's admitted he was at the beachcomber. He says he turned out of the beachcomber at 1341 and he rejects. This is where he's, they have, the state have said the cars are cheek by jowl. Sorry, I see that in my mm. notes. So he rejects that completely, that the car is cheek by jowl with the black BMW. Um, at two o'clock that day, um, these cars are at Donny Carney Church, the state say, and there's a piece of CCTV where you can see the corner of the top of the taxi yeah. plate. Yeah. And Bernard Conn said, that's just simply not enough evidence to say that this is the events' car that has been driven by Paul Murphy. He denies that he was in that church. Um, and he says, when you talk about the key card, yeah, because he basically said that, is it not possible that Patsy Hutch was in the car and dropped the key card. He was the one that had all the key cards, the identical key cards. And, you know, given that the car was at least from Eddie Hutch, etc., could yeah. he not have dropped it in the car or left it in the car at some point? So there's an explanation for that from the defence, obviously. Um, now, Condon says that the chain is broken, this this sort of the, the, the CCTV chain of the car moving, and it's broken by Donny Carney Church. So it's really broken, he says, by a quarter to two. And so therefore, they don't accept that the that was 
before the cars were supposed to have pulled into St. Vincent's uh, GAA club. And he says, therefore, he doesn't he doesn't believe the state have proved that it is Paul Murphy's events that is in the um, the, the Vincent's GAA yeah. club. Um, now, I don't know what the legalities of that is, the chain being broken of CCTV. Well, you I can suppose, hardly be expected to have every second of... No, it's not a... Continue, like, there's not a... There's not a drone no, following no, the not, cars or anything. No, so the state, I suppose, are relying on a kind of common sense, you know, overall picture to be put together. And obviously, the defence are trying to attack that common sense picture. Yeah. Exactly. There's no, there's, there's CCT garnished from, I presume, hundreds of locations and pierced together painstakingly. Yeah. And the state's case is it's obvious what, what had happened. Yeah. And that, you know, you're allowed, you're allowed to put together evidence to make an overall picture. The defense's case is obviously, you know, if there's a gap at all, it kind of falls, falls asunder, I suppose. Yeah. So he, he basically then sort of came to his conclusion ish. Oh, God, we have a few more pages, but he does sort of start to kind of um, um, summarise now. He says the, his first point is that the CCTV evidence doesn't stand up to the standard it should for given what the state are trying to yeah. prove against his uh, client, that it's poor quality in a lot of cases. And he gave the judges particular time frames to go look at. And he sort of said to them, he'd leave it up to themselves, but there's times that... The, this car is in the frames that he just doesn't believe it could yep. be any car kind of he's saying. Um, the second thing was Paul Murphy early on said that his car might have been cloned. He threw that in yep. and it was it sounded a bit ludicrous actually when it was thrown in that yep. your car could be cloned. But actually he, Bernard Condon says they have provided evidence to the court from an expert saying that this is a problem in taxis. The taxis are being cloned and it was something that he says his client, Paul Murphy, said to the guardie from the beginning yep. uh, that, you know, this cloning was obviously a problem. The expert that they brought in said it is a problem and it's not an off the wall thing to say. Yeah. So um, he says that um, you cannot see the plate or the reg in the CCTV, obviously. No, well, I mean, you obviously can see it at some times. For example, he's pulled into the garage and you yeah. can see Paul Murphy. So he's saying that you can see it at times. Other, in other places in this this convoy, you don't see it. Yes. And that, oh, while yes. he's not saying his taxi has been cloned, yes. he's saying that is a possibility. Yes, he's saying if you could identify the plate or the red, you could prove that it hadn't yeah. been cloned. But he's saying that the state haven't proved yeah. that it wasn't cloned, right? So the taxi receipts, he says, are what they are. Now, he says that if the state are saying that those taxi receipts aren't legitimate, they didn't put forward proof that the taxi meter in that car wasn't calibrated correctly. And they didn't seek to kind of prove what they were saying. Yeah. Now, I think that's quite a good point in a way. Yeah, I the mean... the state, not of maybe the taxi meter wasn't... I mean, we don't know. En- I suppose we don't know enough about taxi meters... No, I know nothing about them. Yeah, exactly, so is it possible to... <laughs> I know very little about most things. Yeah, well, right? I, but so, so it's been proven that I know even less, <laughs> arguably. But No, but certainly, so, I mean, that's obviously But I mean, even surely wouldn't it have been an idea to say that we couldn't find out yeah, whether it was accurate or it wasn't accurate? Possibly, or, or, you know, or, you know how, it, how easy it is or, or difficult it is to, yeah. to produce fraudulent receipts. I don't know how we don't know. We don't know, but we yeah. but the state didn't say that either, you know. So anyway, number four was the key card, as I've explained, it could have been left in the car. Number five is the it's about Eddie Hutch, about knowing Eddie Hutch. Yeah. Um and having his Yes, sorry, sorry, sorry. It's the thirty first of May when he is quizzed, obviously, about the key card. In the first interview he says he knows Neddy Hutch. Um, but by May when he's been questioned, uh Paul Murphy, he does know Eddie Hutch and Eddie Hutch has been murdered, he's saying. So yeah. if he's not giving, again, I think probably similar to what um, Fitzgerald was saying about Bonnie, by the time they're being questioned, there's real fear there. Yeah. Um, and he does know Eddie Hutch and Eddie Hutch has been uh, tragically murdered at that time. Uh, yes, because he's a number of interviews. He says in the fifth interview, he, um, in the third interview, he talks about being in fear of for his own safety um, when he's shown the CCTV. And in the fifth interview, he's asked about the key card. So he, he obviously then mm. is evasive about, of, about it. He must have said he didn't know anything about it, but he yeah. later admits he does. But I think 
basically what they were what what they're saying there in the defense is similar to Bonnie. There was, you know, this was May, the feud was very much underway. Yeah. And these people were afraid of being uh, linked to yeah, the there, there, there's a the reason Hutch for their, the reason for their inconsistency as yeah, well. Yeah, in an actual fact, he talks about um, the Hutch family basically being, you know, people that that people didn't want to claim they knew them yeah. at that point. But you obviously, know. and I mean, there is obviously legitimate uh, a legitimate concern in that Noel Duke Kieran, for example. I mean, it seems to have been killed solely because he. He was at the funeral it's of... at the end of, of that year. No, that was 2018, yeah. December 2018. Was, was it? Yeah. But I mean, that's for mm. example, that is the threat level that... that like he Yeah, there was a really high threat level yeah. like in May. Yeah. I mean, by May, February, uh, Eddie Hutch was the first to be killed. Then uh, the next person to be killed was Michael Barr yeah. in the March. Yeah. And then... In the May of that year, Gareth Hutch was killed. And previous to that, Noel Duggan no, no had Duggan been killed, killed in the Easter. Yeah. So there had been a lot of a lot of murders um there. So that was his his fifth point was these interviews, the memos of the interviews and how evasive he was, maybe about the key card. And his next point obviously is going back to Buckingham Village and what he had to say about that, that the state didn't really properly qualify what they meant by the centre of um the, the plans and the kind of the HQ yeah. and also that they didn't prove that these people were seen talking together or anything yeah. in, the, in advance of it. So um, he says that uh, also he says that the uh, there was very little evidence given about what was the Hutch organised crime gang. I found that quite interesting because the reason there was only a little bit of evidence because when they initially brought superintendent, detective superintendent, give him his proper title, David Gallagher, into the court. He wasn't allowed in to give the evidence because there was objections by the defence. Yes. They didn't want him to give by, the evidence. By Jerry Hutch's defence, I By suppose. Jerry Hutch's yeah. defence. And, yeah, probably not the, the yeah. other two. Maybe it was Jerry Hutch's defence. Anyway, he look, the reason that there was a short amount of evidence given was because of the objections, I think, yeah. and there was an agreement that he'd only say a certain amount. Uh, I mean, the state did also address that evidence yesterday and said that you know the that they're under the under Irish law that people in the Gardaí that are that have knowledge and have expertise are allowed to give evidence and the, the the you know the evidence of opinion and that the court is entitled to accept that and yeah. that that evidence was given clearly by somebody with a deep knowledge of of organized crime and the Hutch organized crime gang and he, you know that 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 can be accepted by the court clearly yeah so, yeah, he honed in on the fact that it was intergenerational and familial. And he said that they didn't say, was it the older yeah. hutches or the younger hutches that sort of, you know, were directed operations. Directed for operations better, exactly. Yeah. So he concluded basically by saying that, in his opinion, and it will be up to the judges to decide, the evidence against Paul Murphy is razor thin, he said. He said the evidence of the convoy is very weak. And he said, if he was in such a convoy and he knew what was going to happen, which was is what the charge is, that he has to be aware that he's facilitating yeah. uh, an event or whatever that this organised crime group are going to carry out. He says, why would he drive his own taxi? Surely if he was going to take that role, he would have driven a different car. Um, he says that uh, to, to conclude that the burden of proof simply hasn't been made by the, the, the state, yeah. haven't made a case that uh, proves their case, he says. Which is the, the same defence from each of the three yeah. defendants um, that there is. Uh, like Jerry Hutch's defence was qu quite interesting, actually, yesterday when he's, you know, even in his own defence said, you know, he clearly has some knowledge of events around the Regency and may may even be a, a, a provable case or certainly a case that could be made about knowledge of the weapons, but that you haven't got over the reasonable doubt for murder. And that the, the two defendants today are also saying the same thing. They may have known mm -hmm. this person, that person, but they just haven't proved it beyond a reasonable doubt. And that that is the core of what we're, what we're getting to. And it's what people are stopping you know, and yeah. no doubt way more you than me and saying to them is oh, yeah. like is there enough like yes. do you know the has it got over that the interest is just phenomenal in this and you know 
as you said from the beginning, it's different when you're sitting in court and you're listening to everything and, and people yeah. are hearing a report and they're going, oh, he's, you know, he's going, yeah. he's going yeah. to be jailed, that's him yeah. gone, etc. You know, I suppose an observation of mine for this is between the three defences, while they, the three of them have the same at heart, they're yeah. saying that the case have the state hasn't proved the cases against them. For Bonnie and Murphy, the state is saying they are there on the day. Yeah. So with 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 Hutch, as his uh, senior counsel Brendan Grahan pointed out, the state don't even have evidence he was in the country no, on the day of they, the murder. However, the state is clearly saying arguably at this very late stage, that Jerry Hutch not only was there in the Regency and a part of the conspiracy, yeah. but that he was one of the gunmen, one of the mm-hmm. dressed as a guard. You probably should have let off, though, well, all of this with when is it all, the verdict going to come? Oh, well, the verdict, yeah. I mean, that was great, actually, because, you know, then it just finished and Bernard Condon sat down and it was like, oh, we feel like we've been at a really long sort of a thing here and this is at the end of it. And of course, uh, Justice Sarah Byrne said that she would indicate it anyway, that she was going to give us an idea yeah. when the verdict come, which is really helpful actually yeah. uh, for everybody, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, and they, they, they went off and came back and said that uh, the first day of term, yeah, in after Easter is September, sorry is April the seventeenth. Yeah. So that is the day they will deliver their verdict. If not before that, but it was unlikely it would be before yeah. that. And I called it because I did say that it would be before the Easter holidays. But in actual fact, they'll have finished their deliberations and they'll have had their they right. have their judgment ready. I yeah. presume before the Easter holidays, if they're coming in the day the the, the, the yes. term. So yeah, in a little sort of a smug. Uh, I was right all along. I was right once in my life. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> we'll say uh, we were having a couple of bets before they came back yeah. out uh, amongst us. Um, Mick Doyle decided they were going to be back by February the 13th, I think yeah. he said. Um, Paul Healy reckoned by St. Patrick's Day. And Sean Murray just threw a date out of the area. Yeah. just said he'd take this one because no one else was. And I, I said the end, like I actually said before the Easter holiday. Yeah. So, uh, you were closest. You know that game where you win loads of money if you get closest to something? It's like one no. of those things on the television. <laughs> no? It was a, yeah. well, who wants to be a millionaire? Or? No, it was something else. But I would have oh, I would have gone out with all the money if I had have put some. So, so that's, I mean, that is a long wait for the defendants, I think. But, you know, that's the way it is. Yeah. I mean, that is another... They're still on bail. There was a question about whether they were going to be left on bail or put into custody. Though Jerry Hutch, of course, is in He's custody. He's in custody, yeah. But the other two are out on bail and the judge just warned them, basically, that the conditions of their bail are even more important now because yeah. the judges are deliberating. I think usually people might be put into custody while uh, a trial finishes and the the verdict awaits. Sometimes. Yeah. I mean... So and the state didn't look for them to be put into custody. No. They're obviously not a flight risk or anything no. like it. I mean, it is so. It's it, at that point. Then on that date, they'll come back. You know, normally, I've, I mean, I was there, say for Joe O'Reilly, yeah. And the the jury, they had a. I think it was a three a three day wait, and people it was really long. Well, you it came know, in on a Saturday. I remember yeah, that. Yeah, I do remember that. So, yeah. but a bit, I think it was three or four days. It was yeah. a really long wait because from the case ending to the jury deciding, and then they just come back. They don't say they come back and say guilty or not guilty. They yeah. don't come back saying Joe O'Reilly was convicted because yeah. of the, the the CCTV evidence or because yeah. of the late late or whatever you want. But that's totally different than the special criminal court. They'll, they'll, they'll explain exactly they will what explain, and why they've yeah, come to the conclusion. As in, we reject this bit of evidence, this, we find this bit very credible, yeah. that bit not credible. And they come back, I mean, it's going to be, on that day, it'll it'll be a 90-page document or a 100-page, yeah, will it? very lengthy. And I'm sure they realise the, you know, the weight of this case, yeah. the importance of it. How much is 54 days yeah. in the special criminal court going to cost with all those legal people? And not just that. I mean, there's been... Police, there's the, been, the security. Yeah, there's been, I mean, I, I don't know. Millions. Just loads and loads. Of, I mean, there's been a dozen at least squillions. police officers. Squillions. Yeah, no, seriously, squillions. like, no, but seriously, yeah. it has cost the state the taxpayer, yeah. so much money. And that's before you start looking at the security that remains in place up in Patsy Hutch's house. Yeah, I mean, you that's, know, yeah. That, and before you look at the cost of, you know, Jonathan Dowdall yeah. and his entire family going into witness protection, being protected which, for how which, long, we don't know. Well, I mean, look, it's going to be a seven-figure sum at the, at the least one way or another. And, I mean, 
and I've spoken to a lot of people, you know, about it's really all anybody wants to talk about is the Hutch trial. Um, but like a lot of people kind of are saying that, you know, you look at the state of the health service. Yeah. People who've had elderly relatives yeah. on trolleys and, you know, people have died on trolleys. It's been it is horrendous. Yeah. And you really see that in the winter time when a lot of people are getting sick and people with underlying conditions are getting infections and there's a risk of stroke and the hospital system is just creaking. Yeah. And I'm not saying that you don't you can't pay spend the money. money on just, no, but you it can't is. just spend the money on one aspect and all the rest of it. But this has cost, I'd say this must be the most expensive trial probably the state has put on, certainly in recent times, in recent memory. And the focus will be on the special criminal court. Yeah. And it needs to bring in the right verdict. Well, it needs to, yes. I mean, it, look, the judges make a decision independent of public opinion, obviously, to, not to state the obvious. But there is a broader implication for all of these things. And people need to have... Of course, confidence in 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 that the the right things are being done. The right done. thing is the right and, I mean, verdict, and, and that you know they have uh, they also have to have confidence that in the like we you know the I mean the system. burden because like there is just so much focus on this trial. I mean I think that trials are happening all the time in the special yeah. criminal court. There's people being brought before it on money laundering charges that you'd you'd sometimes miss some of the stuff that yeah. goes on in the special criminal court. But this is a real eye opener to the entire country. And yeah. beyond yeah. what the special criminal court is, yeah. why it's there. And I suppose then when you look at the wider thing, the cost of it to the state, et cetera, et cetera, and the value of it to the state yeah. and the value of it in fighting organized crime. Um, so, you know, I think all eyes are on it and all eyes yeah. will be on the verdict. And there's a lot of pressure yeah. to, to. And the verdict, the right of course, one. as I said, the verdict is there. It'll be in black and white. Yes. And it'll then be, you know, there to be analyzed. But yeah, and of course it can be appealed. Now, say for example, hypothetically, let's say Jerry Hutch walked; he was found not guilty. Could the state appeal? No, no, no. So if he was be, found guilty, he could appeal. Obviously, he could appeal. He could appeal. He could appeal to the yeah. He could appeal to a higher court, yes. the Supreme Court, or whatever. But no, if you can't be tried for the same crime twice, I mean that's double jeopardy. Um, you know that that's that's so the, the DPP can only appeal the can length appeal. of sentences yes. or so for, whatever. Yes, which obviously for Jerry Hutch's case, it's a life sentence yes, is automatic if found guilty. But yeah, they can appeal the length of sentence, the leniency of the sentence. Um, so, in know. other words, if he was found hypothetically, if he was found not guilty, he's walking away a free man, and uh, they can't come after him again for murder. For murder, however, could they come after him for direct? Other charges, you know, we're still but they in can't. The but here yeah, but we shouldn't get too hypothetical. No. But but what is said in court on this occasion, I don't think can be used against him in another trial. Yeah. If you know what I mean, mm -hmm. that that would have to be mm. introduced from scratch again. So, and what about Jonathan Dowdle? Because maybe we'll just park yeah. our our, our speculations and our speculation on on the uh, the verdict here. But uh, what about Dowdle? Like. You know, the investigation into the Regency Hotel is ongoing. There's still a, yeah. a team in place yeah. that's investigating it. And clearly Dowdall has said publicly that he has got information on lots of other people yeah. during this trial. Yeah. He has in particular placed Patsy Hutch at the centre of things. Yeah. Uh, he's named James Mago Gately. Yeah. Um, he's named Patrick Hutch, who was tried for murder and there was a null prosecutor entered yeah. by the state. So he cannot be retried no. for murder. No. Um, so does he, you know, if we go forward, if there's further charges brought, does he keep giving evidence or does it, well, like, do they he, wait and see how he gets on kind of thing? Well, I suppose um, he absolutely could give evidence again against other people, whoever they might be. But presumably only if his evidence is accepted. I mean, well, you wouldn't throw would be, him in again if it was ridiculed, no, for example. Or no, well, was, the DPP would get a file from the Gardaí saying we have Jonathan Dowdle. In it, this is all hypothetical. We have Jonathan Dowdle here and he's going to, he's he can give evidence against X. Yeah. And it would be up for the DPP to assess that then. But and the they DPP would look. They would presumably look. Presumably, will wait and see how the judiciary yes, they will view look, him as a witness. Yes, they will look at that. Mm -hmm. They will. They will assess that, and then, as you know, decide to bring a charge or not bring a charge. And you know, the guardian will put forward a number of charges, possibly against somebody, and they can decide 
we'll 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 go for that. We'll, in this case, we'll go for a murder charge, but in this case, we'll go for something a lesser charge like facilitation mm. or like weapons. So, but yeah, would the would there an appetite to bring Jonathan Dowdle back again? Would you have an appetite to sit through him again? No. Yeah. I'll just tell you one thing, right? Yeah. I might resign if I was asked <laughs> to go another two weeks listening to him in... Uh, I mean, anybody who wants to know what Jonathan Dowdall was like, and we're actually going to not say too much about him because we're going to do something uh, for Saturday, which is a little bit different and it'll be somewhat focused on Jonathan Dowdall. But in the meantime, if anybody wants to kind of... Uh, just close their eyes and get an idea of what it was like to sit for eight days yeah. listening to this man. Just listen to the Joe Duffy interview. Yeah, yeah. That was him. Yeah. Wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. You know, passionately, uh, passionately, yeah. you know. Banging on. Banging on yeah. about his innocence. About how amazing he was and all the work he'd done in the community. and. Yeah. yeah. I saw the, the star, you have to give them credit, They, the pros or in his defence, they said, they quoted Bart Simpson actually, which I thought I recognised that quote. I I didn't do it. I didn't. Nobody saw me do it. Yeah. You know? So you have to give credit to the star. They picked out the Bart Simpson. Bart Simpson. And yeah. Put him on the thing. Yeah. Bart Simpson was kind of likable though. Yeah. A little rogue, wasn't he? <laughs> well. Um. I was actually going to just say to you. Do you remember back then when you're talking about when the juries used to take days on end to mm. well sometimes to come up with it. Yeah. <laughs> but do you remember they had to stop putting them in hotels? Yeah. Because they used to put them in hotel, and there was sort of a, kind of an idea of they enjoying this. Yeah, they take yeah, an extra yeah. few yeah, days yeah, yeah. Watching, watching Sky Sports. Well, there was and certainly sort of ice cream. kind of uh, humor around the idea that exactly yeah, they yeah. were kicking back in the hotel on the yeah, phone yeah. to um, room service. And uh, mm, let me think about that <laughs> yeah, some more. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but then they just started sending. They do send them home yeah, now, yeah. and um, so and they do a great service. I'm not yeah. saying that they didn't. Yes, back in the absolutely. day, deserve their hotels, but yeah. So. Okay, um, we're not totally finished with this, obviously, because we will be awaiting a verdict, and we're gonna we're gonna do something uh, a bit different for Saturday. Uh, but that's it for the moment. It as is. in that when when Bernard Condon sat down and said, sort of, he was done. It was there was a bit of a sigh of relief around the place, and yeah. I'd say a couple of people who've been working very hard on this case. Um, certainly, the the team that are there, the Garda team that are there day in, day out, the, through those files and everything, I'm sure they will be enjoying a nice, cold or warm glass of wine tonight or whatever is their tipple. And uh, just, you know, moving on to something new. Moving on. Um, but of course, we'll be back. Yeah, we'll be back. Okay, that's great. Thank you. Thanks, Nicola. You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. Research assistant is Clodamini. If you like this show and love true crime, leave us a review. Or why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe.